seated. Do you know somebody who needs prayer this morning? Might be you, and that's okay, but is there somebody else that's on your mind? I want you to text them if you've got that contact information and just say, I'm praying for you. I love you and I'm praying for you or something like that. And let's let everybody know that the people of God gather and that the Father's house is a house of prayer for all nations and let them know, not just uh, tell them that we're praying for them, but right now we're actually going to prayer for you. I'm lifting up your name before the throne of the Most High God. And uh, that can be so encouraging. Somebody told me one time we did this and they got five texts just right in a row and they said it changed my whole day and lifted my spirits. And so use technology for the glory of God. There's a lot of it that doesn't glorify God, but we have the opportunity to use it that way. So send somebody that text. And uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer in just a moment, okay? I'll give you a little bit of time. <clears throat> Father, as we do this, we realize that the power is not really in our words. The power is not really in something that we text. The power comes from you. And what we're asking this morning is that your power would flow through us to touch somebody else. And we're asking, Lord, that there would be healing where that is needed. But that's not the only need. We pray for salvation where that is needed. We pray, Father, for discipline where that is needed. We pray, Father, for encouragement where that is needed. Some people just need hope this morning to know that their life matters and to know that life has meaning as long as we're here there's something that you have for us to fulfill may we find that and may we do that and may we not turn back from it some people are crying out to you for change and only you know whether the change is good or bad sometimes we are foolish enough to jump out of the frying pan into the fire will help us not to do that but where change is needed and mandated please do that Lord and we pray also some people are looking for restoration of something a restoration of their fellowship a restoration of, of somebody that has betrayed them or hurt them restoration of a marriage any number of things restoration with a prodigal and we pray, Father, that in all of these things you would do that because you're the God who brings beauty out of ashes. And so we bring the ash heap of our life and our sin and our mistakes and we lay it before you and we anticipate the beauty that's going to come out of that. You restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And we bring that to you, Lord, asking for that restoration so that we might bear fruit for the glory of your name. And we come, Lord, asking you to fill us with a heart full of thanksgiving and praise so that you are glorified even in our darkest trial and the worst of our circumstances. You are exalted and you are glorified. So take this service and use it in the way that pleases you most. And thank you 
that you know our name. And thank you that you know the situation that we're in. Thank you that you care. And thank you for hearing our prayer this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. I'm going to ask for brothers Chad and Isaac and uh, Eric and Andrew. Would you guys come on up here? And uh, we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 26. These guys are going to help us read it because we're going to buzz through the whole thing. So let's, let's take off, okay? Uh, go ahead, Brother Chad. Yeah. Are you there? There we go. Sorry, there we are. Exodus chapter 26, verse 1 through 9. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make the loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall also make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. Verse 9. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that it is outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that it is outermost on the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze, and put the clasps into the loops, and, put the, and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part of the remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtains that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make it for the tent of a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of, the, of a frame and a <coughs> cubit and a half the breadth of a, each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. Verse 20, and for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, 
and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames, and you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them, and they shall form two corners, and there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the other frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames on the other side of the tabernacle. And the bars for the frames on the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward, the middle bar halfway up the frame shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Verse 30. <clears throat> then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate you from the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. And may God add the blessing that only he can give to the reading of his word. Because in reading all of that, those portions that we have this tendency to kind of skip or skim, we go ahead and cover it out of reverence to God. And this is the word of God. And all scripture is given by inspiration of God, even passages like this. And it's profitable, even passages like this for instruction in righteousness and in completing the believer and sanctifying us. And this speaks, of course, and thank you guys, by the way, for helping us. This speaks of the fact that Israel, whatever they may do, they may have their mind on conquering land, on overthrowing kings. That really wasn't what they were going into the promised land to do. The main thing is, they were to be worshipers. And worship was to be the central thing of everything that they did. The worship of God for their families, for their traditions, for their rituals, for their victory, for everything they did. It was to be centered, of course, around worship. And so God says, I want you to build a tabernacle and I want you to put it up and do it just like this. And he describes obviously in much detail, <clears throat> how he wants it to be. And he says, and this is what I want you to see. So what are we supposed to see in this? And I thought of as I was studying John chapter 5, 
39 through 46. Now pay attention to this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? Now listen carefully. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. And here's the main point. For he wrote of me. Well, we've got to ask a question. If the scriptures that they had back then testify of Christ, well, they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They hadn't been written yet. But they did have the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they had all of that. And so what was Jesus saying? You put such stock in Moses, but the truth is, if you really believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Well, that tells me that when we are interpreting books like Exodus, what are we supposed to do? Look for Jesus. Look for Jesus in this. And where do we find Jesus in passages like this when we're looking? Well, here are some things that I want to share with you this morning that I think point us to Jesus about the tabernacle. Now, this tabernacle is um, just a tent. It's made to be packed up easily, and it's also made to be set up easily. And uh, this tabernacle, as they would take it through the wilderness, when they would pack up camp with their own tents, their own houses, they would pack up the tabernacle, and they would carry it wherever they would go. And wherever they went, then they would set it up again. And this was a an occurrence that took place every single time they traveled. For how long were they in the wilderness? Forty years. This thing had to be durable. It had to be portable. And it had to be something that would last because Solomon's temple is not going to be built for hundreds of years after this. You see, when King David was ruling in Jerusalem... Whenever he wanted to worship, he would go to this very same tabernacle. And so the construction had to be just right. And God, the master craftsman, told them exactly how he wanted them to do it. <clears throat> he didn't ask for their advice. He didn't ask for their improvement. He didn't ask for any modification. Nothing like that at all. This is the way you do it. This is the way that I want it done. And to me, it's very interesting that the way God wanted it done might have been a bit different than maybe anyone would have done it. Maybe there were 
people out there that said, when I was a slave in Egypt, I built things like this. I know how it ought to be done. God said, I didn't ask for your expertise. This is how I want it to be done. Someone else might have had a better idea. The light bulb come on above their head. And God said, I don't want your better ideas. Do it the way I said. And what a model for life. Man is always trying to improve upon God. We are trying to modify what he says. Our culture does that very, very well on everything, don't we? And we always think that there is a better way and that we can come up with that better way. Hey, folks, we can't even run our own lives very well. We can't run society very well. Look at the world. Look at what is going on. Look at what is happening. We can't even manage our own governments <coughs> very well. Much less for us to try to manage our own morality, to manage our own ethics, to manage the way that we are supposed to live in a right manner before God and with one another. After all, the commandment is love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. We can't even do that, and we can't even get that right. That's why we are in such a mess. And so we have to do it the way God told us to do it. This is not a matter of a needy, beggar God who just says, I'll be happy with anything I can get. He never presents that in the Word of God. In fact, in the Word of God, He tells us, this is what I want, and this is the standard you must meet. But our problem is all of us have sinned and we come short of the glory of God. So does God just forget it? No, he met the standard through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He set the standard and then he met the standard for us. That's why we've got to enter in the way that he tells us to come and be obedient to his word in all things. So what about the things we just read? Curtains, boards, gold, loops. I mean, what in the world are we talking about here and what are we going to get out of it? Well, when you look at the things that are written here, the four things I'd like to share with you this morning all point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Israelites may not have understood that, but you and I have absolutely no excuse. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so through the New Testament, things open up for us, and we're able to see and to understand things that the prophets didn't understand, that the Old Testament believers didn't understand, at least not fully, but you and I have been given the privilege to look at them through the eyes of the New Testament and see things that would astound them. Now, the very first thing, I want you to think about the word humility. And I want you to think about this tabernacle and how when you look at it, it is a relatively small building. It's about 15 feet wide and 45 feet long. Okay? Not, not very big. It's not like the Taj Mahal. It's not like the Parthenon. It's not like the pyramids that the slaves in Egypt had seen or maybe even had helped to build. This is not like anything that uh, they would expect. 
You know, when you expect that you do something for God, and he says, this is the way I want to be worshipped, how do you want to do it, God? You would expect big, grandiose, huge, amazing. Now, the temple that Solomon built was like that, but this is what God said he wanted and what God prescribed for them while they're still at Mount Sinai before they start their journey to the promised land. And this particular tent is made for the desert. It's made for that time that they're going to be in the wilderness. There'll be time later on for a temple at the right time in the right place, and it'll be absolutely stunning and amazing. But right now, God says, I want you to make a tent. And again, I want it to be durable, and I want it to be made for the desert, but it also has to be portable. And so when God makes this, and we look at this, we are reminded about Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, here it is, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, God laid it out for us that in Proverbs 15, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and listen to this, humility comes before honor. And that's what we see in Christ, before he is ever honored as King of kings, Lord of lords, come and make your kingdom here upon the earth. The first thing he does is to shrink himself from being this omnipresent spirit being, to shrink himself so that he is able to fit into the womb of the Virgin Mary. And there we see this all-powerful creator, ever-present, all-knowing God emptying himself of all of that and coming to earth so that he could be the sacrifice for our sins. And for those 33 years that he lived on earth, he lived in what Paul called this earthly tabernacle, this earthly tent. He had one too. A body prepared for him by God the Father that he lived in on earth. And he was confined to that body, and that body had to sleep, that body had to eat, that body had to drink, I mean, just like ours. And he lived and walked among us during that time, and he walked in perfect humility. And the tabernacle, when you look at it and you compare it to the things that were in Egypt or the things that you see around the world, <clears throat> what do you look at except to say, that's not much, it's not very big, it's not very impressive, what in the world are we to learn from that? The humility of our Lord Jesus Christ. He humbled himself for you. He humbled himself in obedience to the Father. He humbled himself so that he could die. And he humbled himself so that he could die not just any death, but the death of the cross in shame and in humiliation, humbling himself so that he could pay for your sins. The tabernacle testifies of Christ in 
the fact that it was small. Secondly, I want you to think about the fact that it is unimpressive on the outside. When you read this description of the tabernacle, we may look and say, oh, the beautiful embroidery, that must have been something. The fine linen, it must have been something. The overlaid gold that was put on the boards that framed the tabernacle, oh, that must have been amazing. And I'm sure it was breathtaking. But that was not for public consumption. Only the priest could go into the tabernacle. Now, other people could come into the outer area, the courtyard of the tabernacle, but the tabernacle was called the holy place, and then that one spot was called the holy of holies, and only the high priest could enter that once a year. So most of the people, the two million Israeli slaves, would never see the beauty inside the tabernacle, but the priest would. It was limited to them. There was only one way to go in to that tabernacle, and only the priest could enter in to the tabernacle. What did everyone else see? Well, did you see it in the text? They saw a tent. What was it made out of? Well, there was part of it that was made out of goat's hair. Boy, that's exotic, isn't it? There was another part of it on the roof that was made out of ram skins that were dyed red. And then there was another layer on it. Some versions say it was made from porpoise skins. I don't know where they would get those in the desert, but there are others that say badger skins. King James will say that. And then there are others that put it just like it was a waterproof type of skin. And the Jewish encyclopedia, <coughs> I looked it up thinking, if anybody would know what this means, they would. And they talked about it being a tough, durable type of leather that would hold up under the intense uh, sun in the desert. And if you do happen to get a rainstorm in the desert, it happens that it would uh, shed the water. And so you had the framework of the tabernacle itself with those embroidered curtains, and then outside of it would be the, uh, the tent over the tent, I guess you would say, that was made out of these other things. So what was it that people saw when they looked? Somebody said, come see our brand new tabernacle. Oh, really? Boy, it must be amazing. With all that money we put into it, with all the offerings that we brought, and then when they looked at it, they go, that's it? This kind of looks like the Israelis' tent. If you were to look at it, you would say, that's nothing more than a nomad's tent. Bigger than a typical tent, but not all that big, and not all that impressive. You say, well, uh, how in the world do you see Jesus in that? The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, in the 53rd chapter and the second verse describing the Messiah, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. A root out of dry ground. Those are usually not very impressive. What's impressive are the well-watered flowers, not the roots that grow up out of dry ground. 
And then Isaiah goes on to make it even more clear. He, this is speaking of Jesus, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You know, whenever John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Can you imagine the crowds going, The Messiah! And then they would look and they would see Jesus. And I'm going to submit to you that they were probably a little bit disappointed. He didn't look much like a king. There wasn't any majesty. He didn't have any halo around him. He wasn't glowing. He wasn't a person who was particularly good-looking. He wasn't a person that when he walked in the room, all eyes moved his direction. There was no form. That's the way his body was and the shape and all of that. And there was no majesty. No, uh, one version says comeliness. There was nothing about him that you would notice. There's nothing about him that would draw your attention to him and the way that he looked. And the Bible says here that he was not a particularly strikingly handsome man. He was just average, normal. He looked like one of us. He looked like any number of Israelis walking around that same day. He wouldn't have stood out in a crowd for his physical appearance. He was just like them. And that's what the tabernacle pictures, because when you look at the description of the tabernacle, on the outside, what's so impressive? It looks just like my house, just a little different size. But oh, if you could go inside that tabernacle, and you could see those curtains with the fine linen and the embroidery of the cherubs, if you could go in there and see the furniture that was made of gold, If you could see the acacia wood frame that held the tent up, plated in gold. If you could see all of that and the beautiful curtains and the way they were dyed, it would be breathtaking. And in the same way, when you looked at Jesus from the outside, no big deal. He doesn't look like a military leader. He doesn't look much like a king. He doesn't look like somebody who's wealthy. He doesn't look like somebody who would be the life of the party. He doesn't look like anybody at all like that. But oh, if you could see on the inside of our Lord. The old Christmas hymn says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity. And that's what we see when we look at the tabernacle. The human form, the outer form of Christ that veils the inner beauty of of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thirdly, when you look at this tabernacle, there's something that is striking. Not only is it the fabric for the tent, but you've also got wood described. And God gives the dimensions of the wood. And as if that were not bad enough, he says, now cover it in gold. If you're going to move something like this, a structure of this size, you would want everything to be as lightweight as possible. And it's interesting that God doesn't lighten the load. He says, now, as if the wood beams are not heavy enough, cover them in gold and let's make them heavier. 
The other thing I noticed too is we're just now getting to the wood. I would think you would build the frame of the tent first. But it's interesting, God's ways are never our ways. And he starts with the furniture, and then he says, build the interior curtains of the tent, and then build the frame. God knows what he's doing. And when I thought about the frame and all they had to do, I thought about the word heavy. And I thought about the fact that this is going to be a job to set up. It's going to be a job to dismantle. And then pity the poor souls who have to carry it through the heat of the desert day after day after day, mile after mile after mile, year after year after year. Let's make it worse. Decade after decade after decade. Forty years of carrying all of this. How do we see Christ in that? Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 and 38. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. The word that says very sorrowful in the Greek can be divided up and it has the prefix on there which means encompassed or surrounded. And then the next word, of course, is the word for grief. He was saying, my soul is more than just a little bit sad, I am engulfed in grief right now to the point even of death. It was more than his humanity could take. And why was he experiencing that? Because he was carrying the weight, not of the tabernacle, but of your rebellion against God, of your sin. And so when I look and I see people straining under the weight of those beams and carrying the tent itself and the curtains and the furnishings of it, and I think about the weight of all of that, it reminds me of my Savior who came to earth for one design that he might bear <coughs> the weight of my sin, the weight of your sin. And it was a heavy load. And it was a hard thing for him to carry. Don't ever think that Jesus went to the cross skipping and whistling zippity-doo-dah or something like that. He went there almost, almost dying because of the weight, the emotional and spiritual weight of your sin, of the understanding that he is going to be cursed by God the Father that God the Father is going to pour all of his anger for all of your sin upon Christ. That's more than one man can take. And had he been simply a man, he couldn't have taken it. But praise God, he was the God-man who was able to take it and then cry as he died, not with a whimper, not with a whisper, like everyone else dies. But Jesus died after being beaten, scourged, flogged, whatever you want to call it, 
after hanging on the cross for those three hours, and yet his last words were shouted out, It is finished! Then he died because there was no reason for him to hang around anymore. He had done what he came to do. And the weight of all of that bore upon him so hard that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't ever think he was just hanging there on the cross, a little bit of blood trickling out, and it was just no big deal. It was the most any human has ever endured. In fact, it says in the book of Hebrews that he tasted death, and the Greek has an article in front of it, he tasted the death on behalf of us. Why? Because that's a death no one has ever died. No one ever was born like Jesus. No one ever lived like Jesus. No one ever died like Jesus. It was the death of all deaths. But praise God, no one was ever resurrected like our Lord either. And so he paid for our sins and he bore the weight of our sins when he died on the cross. And fourthly, I see Jesus in this because the Bible says... Now, make some other curtains. And put these curtains up so that the entrance is blocked off and so that the Holy of Holies is blocked off from the rest of the place. So everybody knows, don't cross. Don't come in. And this particular part stresses the holiness, the separation, and exclusivity. You know, God didn't say, we're going to pray fair. Anybody who wants to come in, come in. No, no. Only the priest in the holy place. And only the high priest in the holiest place. And they could only come in one way and only as prescribed by God. Which reminds us of Jesus who tells us about salvation. I am not a way. I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Back in the days when the Jesus movement started, when hippies were getting saved, they would do this. You know what that meant? Not we're number one. It meant one way. One way. And they would use this as a sign to one another and all of that. We've forgotten that. And today when you have so many people that think God accepts every religion and there are many ways to get to heaven and many roads and we've just chosen this particular one. That's not what God says. Not what God says. In fact, when you talk about holiness, who gets to go to heaven? Psalm 24, 1 through 3 says, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Now, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? That's a good question. That's what we want to know, isn't it? Or who may stand in his holy place, the holiest place? Who can do that? Well, then the psalmist answers, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who would that be? It's not me. It's not you. 
It's not the high priest. There's only one person that can really say, my hands are clean and my heart is pure. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was in the presence of God, read John 1. And he came down to earth, lived among us, and stayed perfect. In this rotten, dark world, he stayed perfect. He died on the cross, rose from the dead, and then went to heaven and put his own blood on the mercy seat there. And then he sat down because the sacrifice was once for all. And we come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that sacrifice is perfect and it is a permanent sacrifice. He is the one with clean hands and a pure heart who made the way for us to be able to go into the presence of God. And you'll notice that on these curtains, the color scheme that God chose, blue, which reminds us of heaven where Jesus came from, Purple reminds us of royalty because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the scarlet remind us of the sufferings of Christ. That scarlet dye was made by taking a certain type of worm and crushing it. Isn't it interesting that in Psalm 22, 6, our Savior says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. This is the Lord being crushed, and the scarlet that came out of him in his blood is the cleansing for our sin that we might be able to enter into his presence. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 27 that this curtain that is being talked about here in the tabernacle, it was later in the uh, temple, and when the Lord Jesus died, Something absolutely amazing happened. It's Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple, that one that separated the Holy of Holies from everyone else, was torn in two from top to bottom. If man did it, it would be bottom to top. God did it top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says... Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what do we do? Stay out? Not anymore. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith not faith in us but faith in him and what he did with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful how do I know that if I were to died tonight in my sleep, that I would go to heaven. Well, obviously it's because I'm a preacher. Obviously it's because I'm a good person and there are things that I don't do and God would take me. Not on your life. How do you know that that would happen? There's only one thing. 
Because our trust and our hope is based upon not what we have done for God, but what God has done for us in the person of Christ. And even in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, you look at that and you see it's kind of unimpressive in its size. And we see our God who humbled himself to become one of us and live on earth. We look at the tabernacle and we say it's unimpressive on the outside. And we see our God who is fully God veiled in human flesh like ours. We think about this particular tabernacle and we think about how as the Lord had them build it and put it together, he added weight to it. And it reminds us as those men would groan and strain and sweat as they carried that of our Savior who carried the weight of our sins and paid our sin debt in full. And as we think of all of the things that say keep out, we're reminded of a veil that was torn from top to bottom. We're reminded of a Savior's blood that cleansed us of all of our sin. And we're reminded that as we are brought into his family, we are now kings and priests able to enter into the holiest place with boldness, with confidence. Why? Because of who we are? No. Because of who he is and what he has done for us through his own death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus, my friend, is the only way to get to heaven. The only way to get to God. And the scripture testifies him from the beginning all the way unto the end. So when you read the Old Testament, look for Jesus. Look for Jesus. When you're looking in there at the old stories and all of that, and even some of the things that you might tend, like this chapter, to just skip over. Look for Jesus. Because God gave you his word and preserved his word for a reason and for a purpose. And Jesus clarified it. The scriptures testify of me. And Moses wrote of me. And even when Moses wrote what God told him about the tabernacle, was it really about the tabernacle? Well, yeah. But what was the fuller meaning that Moses was giving? God wants worshipers. And the only way you can come to worship a holy God is not by giving your money, not by doing good deeds and charitable work, not by attending church. Those are fine in their place. But the only way to get to God is to repent of your sins and to put your trust in what Jesus has done, that he paid for your sins by his blood, that he rose from the dead, and that he is Lord of all, and you surrender your life to him. And what happens? All the barriers come down and are torn apart. And the invitation is, come into the place you could never get to before, and you are welcome here into the holiest place. That is your privilege and your right as a child of God. It's because of whose you are. And because of that, we have boldness. So let's go boldly before the throne right now as we conclude. Father, what a thought 
that we are doing something right now that the high priest could never do. To come into your presence in the holy place, the holiest place. And to come before you knowing that you hear us and that you answer our prayer. Not because of what we've done or how well we've done. But we come on the worthiness of Christ. Asking you to save people who were lost. Build up people who are saved. And do it all for the glory of your name. Feed our souls today on this. And let it change the way we think, the way we live, the way we pray, the way we act, the way we react. May it make us thankful and grateful. And may we look at life and realize it's not just about happiness. It's about the fact that our lives have meaning and they matter because of you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And may you bless the preaching of your word in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.